Hello, good morning church. Do you hear me well? My uh, internet speed was a little bit wonky this morning when I tested it, so I'm hoping I hear nothing from you guys, which means no news is good news. And if it does kind of crack up, I'll try to speak even slow, more slowly so that we can all understand. Yeah? So, how are you guys feeling today? Perhaps some, like I am, we are rejoicing that we finally got, got at the start of the school holidays. Or maybe for some others, summer holidays or not, it doesn't quite make a difference because it's the same routine every day, just that in summer there are more daylight hours to enjoy a day. But whatever you are at today, I just want to say that I'm glad that you have chosen to be here today together with all of us praising and honouring God. It has been another year marked by COVID, school closures, restrictions, and then more restrictions, and then getting in sight of the finish line and seeing it all slip away within a span of two weeks. The colour chart of the Netherlands is turned from a nice spring green to a deep Bordeaux colour. Well, dark red is fine if you're a glass of wine, but not if you're, if you're a country you're trying to get out of the grip of COVID. So understandably, we are all tired. I am. So I hope that our passage today will give us the motivation going into summer to continue to run the race that's been set, us, set before us, keeping our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus. May we never let our faith slip away from us when we get so close to the finish line. So that was my preachy part of my personal reflections, actually, which has been sparked off by recent events. But one of the ways that we get um, help us in running this race is to stay in the Word. So let's get to the Word quickly. Um, Bible's ready. I have a really thick one here. It's a bit faded, but... Well, two months ago, I preached on Isaiah 6. Does anybody still remember? Well, <laughs> I do. I focused on our view of God and how that affects our reaction to Him for what He has done for us. Today, we will also have a view of God, and this time from the, old, from the New Testament, through the eyes of the people who saw Him, Jesus, God in flesh. And for that, we turn to another chapter 6, John chapter 6. You may flip to there and leave, leave it on that page. John chapter 6 was read to us earlier in the service by Helen. And for today, we will just be focusing on the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. John 6, 1 to 15. This is a familiar story. If you grew up in church, you would have heard the story many times about the boy who gave the five loaves of bread and two fish to Jesus and that Jesus used that to feed 5,000. And if you are systematically going through the Bible in a year, you would also have read it a couple of, a couple of times. First, in the Gospel of Matthew, and then you get to Mark and then you read, hmm, this, this story sounds familiar. Haven't I read it before somewhere? And then in Luke, you get the same deja vu feeling. And by the time you come to the Gospel of John, you know the story by heart. Yes, it's no surprise, we know the story well. What you may not know 
is that this is the only specific miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all the four Gospels. You can find this story in Matthew 14, in Mark 6, Luke 9, and here in our passage in John 6. And I thought, well, rather than have us flip between all four accounts, I thought it would be helpful if I drew out the salient points in each of the Gospel accounts and then put them all into one story. So, here is the complete story, synthesized from all four Gospel accounts, drawn from the NIV, the ESV, and the RSV Bible translations, and I hope recounted in Technicolor and surround sound. As I retell this story, I want you to do something for me. Try to see if you can identify a particular situation, an emotion, or a reaction by the characters in the story, which speaks directly to you. So go think about situation, an emotion, or a reaction. Yeah? Here goes. John the Baptist has been beheaded by King Harold. John the Baptist is a relative of Jesus. Not only some relative, he was a close relative. When Jesus hears about John's death, he withdraws privately to a solitary place. I imagine that he was in mourning, and I can imagine that having the paparazzi pressing around you, asking you to look this way and that, smile at the camera, you know, heal this lame man while our cameras are rolling, it doesn't quite help with that mourning process. So Matthew tells us that Jesus goes off to a solitary place. Even though he is God, he still needs the time alone to process and to mourn. In all this time, Jesus and his disciples have been so busy doing ministry with helping others that Mark tells us they didn't even have time to eat. Jesus and his friends were running low on nourishment, both physical and psychological. But even in that state of being, Jesus was chased by the crowds. All When Jesus was chased by the crowds all the way to Bethsaida, that's a town on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, when he saw the people coming to him, he, he had compassion on them. And Luke tells us, that Jesus welcomed them, taught them about God, and healed those in need of healing. Now it was getting late, and the disciples come to Jesus to ask him to send the crowd away to the surrounding towns so that they could find food and lodging. I can imagine the disciples were also tired. They had been working all day and looking forward to the end of their workday. But Jesus tells the disciples, you give them something to eat. Philip is asked by Jesus where they can go buy bread to feed the people. But Jesus does that only to test Philip, for Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Philip answers that 200 denarii would not even be enough to teach each person a little bit of bread. I pause the story here for a little side note. 
Philip comes from Bethsaida, so he should know the place better than any of the other disciples, which was likely to be the reason why Jesus directed the question at him. Of course, you ask the local where the best restaurant is. But Philip must have felt that he was put on the spot by the master. Some people are critical of Philip for his lack of faith. I mean, this is Jesus, right? Standing before him, the same Jesus that Philip had seen calming the storm with a single word. He's seen, he's seen Jesus healing multitudes of people, seeing Jesus turning water into wine. Does Philip not get it? Others have called Philip a bean counter. Well, I'll like to give Philip some slack. Look, he's tired and he's hungry. Physiologically, you're not at your best when you're tired. You know, we mothers, we love our children dearly. But I also do not know any mother who have never screamed at their kids. Mothers are the most tired people on the face of the earth. I don't know about what you do when you're tired and you're hungry, but chances are you're not at your best. So Philip is tired and he's hungry. He feels like all eyes are upon him to come up with a solution to a, to a mega issue which cannot be solved. We, we know we have God in our lives. We know he's all powerful and all able and ready to help us even in situations where we think there's no solution. And there's no, where we cannot find a solution to. Have we always had enough faith that God will solve our problems? So Philip is the practical bean counter. He does the psalms in his head. He decides that he decides that ah, practically, this was not going to work. Without realizing that Jesus was not asking him to go get the money for the bread. Jesus was simply asking him where to find the bread. Philip was already thinking ahead, or should I say, worrying ahead. Two steps ahead of, of Jesus. My husband is also a sort of bean counter for his company. And sometimes the practicality in his decision making just drives me absolutely crazy. I got my husband's permission to share this story with you as an example of how I imagine someone like Philip, how his mind works. So, when Johan and I were in our early days of dating, we had a date to go out somewhere. But I fell ill. In, in Singapore, where I come from, I was almost never ill. Well, never ill enough to not be able to go out. So I call Johan and I tell him, I can't go out tonight because I'm ill. And in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, he's going to say, oh, you poor thing, it's okay, we don't have to go out, I'll come and visit you, you know, those kind of things. Instead, this is what he said. Oh, if you're so ill, then I better not come visit you in case I get also infected. Uh-huh. And this was when we were dating eh, and supposedly in love. But... So you see how the practical considerations trumps all 
other considerations in the decision-making. But boyfriends, I strongly suggest to you not to say such things to your girlfriends when she's ill, even if you may actually be thinking that. But we thank God for the bean counters in our midst, because without them, we'll plunge right into a project and then realize halfway through that we are short of resources to finish the project well. So I think we can be a little bit more sympathetic and understanding towards Philip, cons considering his innate character and the circumstances he was in. But that doesn't quite mean that Philip actually did the right thing in that, solution, in that situation. He made two errors. First, he misunderstood what God required of him at that moment. And two, because he was so focused on everything else around him and trying to come up on his own um, to a solution, he forgot who was standing in front of him. Now, back to the story. Where were we? Uh, yeah. Yes, it would cost 200 denarii just to buy a little bit of bread for the whole crowd. The NIV translation informs us that 200 denarii is a man's wages for eight months. Jesus then tells them, go see what they can rustle up. Andrew finds a boy with five barley loaves and two fish. Jesus instructs the disciples to get the crowd to sit down in groups of fifties to hundreds, and then in the sight of everyone there, he took the bread and the fish, looked up to heaven, blessed the food, broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to distribute among the people. After a long, hard day's work, when the disciples were hoping to finally be able to rest, they were told to do some more work in serving others. Can anyone identify with that? Everyone ate and was satisfied. Then Jesus told his disciples to gather up all the leftover broken pieces so that nothing would be wasted. The disciples had to serve dinner and then clean up also after that. Can anyone now identify with that? <laughs> the disciples gathered in 12 baskets of broken pieces. Each of them had one basket full. The result of this was that the crowd saw this miraculous sign and that impacted them so much that they said that this must be the prophet that was to come. This is the prophet that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18. But Jesus, knowing that the crowd intended to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I'm in the middle of my sermon. I know nobody does that, but I, I just want to stop for a moment to pray. Can I do that? Let's pray. Father, may your words handed down through so many hands and preserved through so many generations speak to us today. Come Holy Spirit and tell us what you want for us to hear today. In Jesus' name, Amen.
The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 takes place in the Gospel of John between a series of recorded miracles. Before this, John records the healing of the official's son in chapter 4. In chapter 5, the healing of the man lame for 38 years. After this feeding miracle in chapter 6, John then records the miracle of Jesus walking on water. You may have been taught previously that each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they were written in the first instance for a specific group of people and for a specific purpose. We're lucky we don't have a guess John's purpose for writing his Gospel of John because he gives it to us clearly in John 20, 30 to 31. Now what does that say? John 20, 30, 30 to 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is the driving purpose of John's Gospel, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. But it doesn't end there. Satan also believes that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing, you may have life in his name. I will not be doing a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of our Bible passage today. I'm sorry if you're expecting that. But even I get bored using the same methodology all the time. In the time that I have left, I want to make the main point the main point. The reason John records this miracle is so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And this is the Gospel. Jesus as God in flesh who has come into our realm as the second Adam to put right what the first Adam did wrong with all the bad consequences that followed after. Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross to bear all the sins of the world, past, present and future. For the wages of sin is death. And justice demands that there be payment for all wrongdoing. Only the sacrifice from a perfectly sinless man could satisfy this justice of God. And only the love of God could cause God himself in the person of Jesus to step into our shoes to take on the penalty of death on himself. If you have never chewed on that thought, stop now for a moment to, to chew on that thought. And for the rest of us, these things were written so that by believing we may have life in Jesus' name. What does that mean, life in Jesus' name? On an overarching level, John means eternal life, John 3.16. But elsewhere, John also quotes Jesus as saying, The thief comes to steal, to kill and to destroy, but I have come so that they may have abundant life, John 10.10. That abundant life encompasses our current life here on, the, on earth. However, by abundant life, I don't think John means just enjoying you know, the material comforts of life on this earth. Enjoying material comfort could be part of that life, but it should always lead us back to thankfulness, to gratefulness, and at the end of the day, to worship. Just like in the great hymn that we often use in our doxology, Praise God from whom all blessings flow.
Praise Him, all creatures here below. Our earthly blessing should always lead, lead us back towards giving God praise and worship. But if it's not just material blessings, then what is abundant life? Abundant life in His name means living a life in a manner and for the purpose that God made you for. With a joy that comes in spite of your circumstances and recognizing that every step of the way, it is God who is working through you to enable you to fulfill your purpose. A couple of years ago, our church organized a week-long holiday Bible club with the theme, Who Do You Say I Am? And at the closing service, we handed out these armbands. For those who have it, it is time to wave your armbands in front of your camera. <laughs> Thank you all. <laughs> Our Bible club's theme, Who Do You Say I Am? came from the question that Jesus asked his disciples. Our answer to the question that Jesus posed is crucial for understanding the magnitude of what he has done for us on the cross, which in turn affects our reaction towards him. Similarly, the actions of the people crowding around Jesus in our miracle story is very much reflective of how they viewed Jesus. How many characters were there in the story? There was, well, the crowd. From Matthew's account, we know that that included women and children. The crowd must also have included the sick and people who needed healing. And there were the disciples, and who else? The boy. There were two named disciples, Philip and Andrew. How did these people view Jesus? And perhaps more importantly, with which of these people would you identify with? Are you seeking physical healing from Jesus? or hoping to get some benefit from Jesus? Have you come to Jesus because you were following your spouse? You know, in those times, the women and children would certainly not be gallivanting through the countryside if their husbands were not with them. Have you come to Jesus because your parents were part of the crowd? Or do you identify with the disciples, feeling of, often feeling overworked, and underfed? Or do you feel like the boy, worried because he has given up all that he has left to eat to Jesus? Or finally, do you feel like Philip, who felt he was asked by Jesus to do the impossible? To most of the crowd, Jesus had a response. He knew that the crowd had a wrong view of him. Verse 15. They wanted him to be their physical king, their champion provider. Of course, they he, he gave them bread and fish. But Jesus wanted them to have him as king in their hearts. In John 6, 26, he shows the crowd where their heart is. 
He says, you're looking for me because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, to seek Jesus for the health and blessings that he provides and not him. And we know that to be true because in John 6, 66, just at the end of the chapter, we are told that when the going got tough, many of Jesus' followers left him. Which is quite amazing from wanting him to be king to leaving him all within the same chapter. So let's be honest with ourselves today and we ask, why are we following Jesus? What if God does a joke on us? You know Job's story. He lost his wealth and his children all in one day and then he lost his health too shortly after. What if God does a joke on us? Will we turn bitter and angry at God? Or will we still fall to the ground in worship and say, like Job did, naked I come and naked I will go. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. I hope for all of us here that none of us will ever have to go through all that Job went through. But I pray also for us too, that if it does happen, that God will give us the strength and faith to go through it. For those identifying with the women and the children, your faith cannot be your spouse's faith, or your parents' faith, or your culture's faith. So I was once in a conversation with an African lady, coffee time after church, talking about the importance of church life for her and her children. And she said to me, very matter-of-factly, we are from Ghana and we go to church on Sundays. I thought it was an interesting comment. And I had to think about it a little bit more to try to understand what she actually meant by that. 50 years ago, if you just asked about any Caucasian Dutch person, if, if they were Christian, they would reply, that they have been entered on the register of their local church since they were babies. Of course they are Christians! I'm not trying to bash any culture group or people group. I'm just trying to emphasize that there are no culture, no culture Christians, no people group Christians, no family Christians, no denominational Christians. There, there are only Jesus Christians. And this is exactly why John the Baptist said to the Jews, Do not begin, begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. We do not become a member of God's family by natural or cultural descent, but rather by responding personally to God. So my question is, who do you say he is? Or do you feel like Philip, faced with a task of such magnitude that you don't even know where to begin? Do not make the two errors he did. Understand what God is require, requiring of you at this moment. Do not tangle yourself up with worry with what could be happening two steps down the road. 
God knows what he will be doing. Verse 6, you don't. And do not lose sight of the fact, like Philip did, that God himself is with you. And finally, for those with the with, who identify with the fatigue of the disciples and the sacrifice of the boy who gave up all he had to Jesus, I have a word of encouragement for you. God our Father sees. Jesus ensured that there were 12 baskets full of bread left for the disciples. Do you think it's just a mere coincidence, 12 baskets of bread, 12 disciples? Bread represents sustenance, nourishment, and even Christ himself. Jesus says in 6.35, I am the bread of life. For those who labor at his work, Jesus not only sustains us and nourishes us, he also gives his very self to us. And I cannot imagine a greater reward than that. And in the words of this very simple but oh, so lovely worship song, it says, In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. When I'm alone, when I'm alone, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. When I come to die, when I come to die, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but just give me Jesus. These are written and said so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. For those who will be on summer holidays, I wish you a wonderful time. And my holiday starts right now. <laughs> Thank you.